you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John as we continue our journey through Jesus' Upper Room Discourse in chapter 14. Our text this morning is going to be John 14, verses 15 through 24, the middle section of this chapter. We're going to spend some time in this discourse. One of the main themes of Jesus' teaching here with his disciples is teaching them about the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're going to introduce that subject. Jesus will tell us more about our relationship with the Spirit and our relationship with Him through the Spirit in chapters 15, 16, and 17. But we are beginning this morning in John chapter 14. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. To be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you. And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while. And the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am the Father. I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes that we might see Jesus. That we might see him in all of his glory. The glory that he had from the beginning with you, O Lord. The glory that he received For his atoning work. And the glory that he has. From the worship of his people. This we pray. In Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at the beginning. Of Jesus' significant teaching. On the Holy Spirit. And it's important to us because. The Holy Spirit is often ignored by believers. We don't often think about who He is and our relationship with Him. 
he can seem, after all, to be the anonymous member of the Trinity. It can be hard to understand exactly who he is. After all, we can grasp who the Father is because we understand that concept of fatherhood. And we know who the Son is because we can look into all the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. But the Holy Spirit, or perhaps even more confusing, the Holy Ghost, seems mysterious. His very name is difficult to understand. Is the Spirit a force that comes from the Father? Or is the Spirit an expression of the power of the Son? In this farewell discourse, Jesus will teach us a great deal about the Holy Spirit. Because our relationship with the Spirit is foundational to the Christian life. In our text, Jesus starts with a promise that he will send his Holy Spirit to us. And he begins to describe what that means for us. He tells us this morning two things. That the Holy Spirit is a helper and the Holy Spirit is a homemaker. And we're going to look at these two titles, if you will, in turn. Let's begin by looking at the Holy Spirit as a helper. So Jesus begins this discussion of the Holy Spirit and our relationship with the Holy Spirit by describing his relationship with us. It all begins with Christ. Our relationship with the Spirit begins with our relationship with Christ. And so in this context, it should not surprise us to see that Jesus begins there. He's been with his disciples for three years. And he's just announced to them that he is about to leave them. Now you can imagine all the thoughts that are going through their heads. They might be thinking, Jesus is abandoning us. Maybe he doesn't really love us. He's leaving us. Or they might think, what will we do now? We've been following all this time and we don't know how to lead. We just follow Jesus. Or how will we manage to keep following God and serving him? Jesus is the one who helped us to know and to do the right things. And so Jesus gives them direction. It's a simple statement, but it's profound and direct. In verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. As we look at this simple sentence, it is important for us to understand the grammar of the sentence so we don't get the wrong meaning. It is a conditional sentence. That is, it sets out a pattern. If this, then that as a consequence. If this first thing happens, this second thing will follow. And so, this is a simple conditional sentence. There is no doubt here in Jesus' words. It's not as if he's saying, well, you might not love me. It's not as if he's not sure it's going to happen. You know, we can do that when we speak. We can say, you know, if it rains today, the bushes and the grass will get some water they need. 
Or we might even take a skeptical air and say, you know, if there's any chance that it rains today, we'll get the water we need. And you can understand the difference in the way I phrase that. <coughs> Jesus' statement is very straightforward. We might almost say, if, and I know it's true, you love me, then what you can look for is, you will keep my commandments. The second important grammatical point that we need to understand is the tense of the verb, keep. Jesus is saying, you will keep my commandments. It's a future tense. This is not a command. It is not an imperative. He's not saying, you need to keep my commandments. And if you do, then you can love me. You have to keep my commandments first. I have to see some action out of you. I have to see some results before I really know that you love me. No, instead, it's really a future tense those who love Jesus will keep his commandments. Now, Jesus is telling his disciples this, and frankly, you and me, so that we would have an assurance of our relationship with him. Now, this is something that we all can go through. We wonder whether we truly love Jesus. Every time we have a doubt, every false step, Every failure can strike at our hearts. We think, maybe I'm kidding myself. Am I really a follower of Jesus? I need to plumb the depths here. I'm not sure that I'm really a believer. So Jesus is giving us a way to see the reality of our love for him. Because those who merely profess a commitment to Jesus do not follow through. They don't listen to him. They don't do what he says. But those who truly love Jesus, love his word. Jesus repeats that over and over again. In verse 15, he says, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And again, in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the Father will love them. You see, over and over again, Jesus is saying, evidence of your love for me is you keeping my commandments. Now, Jesus doesn't want you to wonder. Because those who love Jesus must show it. And in that, they receive an assurance. So, this raises a question immediately, though, in our minds. How can we keep Jesus' commandments? You may be saying to yourself right now, I love Jesus, but I keep failing. I keep doing things that I know I'm not supposed to do. I keep thinking things that I know I'm not supposed to think. I keep failing to do things that Jesus has commanded me to do. And maybe even more than that. How can I possibly keep all of the commands, all of the words of Jesus? And then doubt rises in our hearts. If I can't keep his commands, does that mean that I really don't love him? Does that mean that I don't have a true relationship with him? Well, Jesus doesn't want you to wonder. Now, if Jesus were remaining with the disciples, that issue would be resolved. They could simply ask Jesus. 
Do we really love you? Do you love us? And that, of course, is our problem. Because Jesus is not physically with us here. If he were here, you could ask him. You could look into his eyes. You could be reassured by his voice. You could say, Lord, do I truly love you? And to hear his voice would settle all matters. But Jesus tells us that he must go away. He's going to prepare a place for us. He's going so that he and the Father will be glorified. And yet, Jesus is not worried for us. He has something better in mind for us than even him staying with us. He tells us in verse 16 that he is going to send the Spirit. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, we need to get out of our minds the thought that the Spirit is a poor substitute for Jesus. That Jesus is sending the Spirit even though we would rather have him. You, you know what that's like, don't you? You go to a restaurant, maybe it's even your favorite restaurant, and you've been thinking to yourself all afternoon, oh, I can't wait until I get the ribs. Or I can't wait until I get that salmon. Or that steak is delicious. And you sit down and you say to your spouse, oh, I'm so ready. I've been working myself up all day. I'm going to order. And the waiter comes over and he says, are you ready? Do you know what you want? And you say, I'm more than ready. Let me lay it on you. I've been ready all day. I'm going to have the ribs. And the waiter looks at you and says, oh, I'm sorry, sir. We happen to be out of the ribs tonight. Is there something else on the menu that you might like? Now, if you're like me, you had just become crushed inside. You're like, why did I even go out? Can we go someplace else and not pay the bill? I mean, I don't want this. All right, I guess I'll have the chicken. That's what we say to ourselves, right? And you'll eat the chicken and it'll be fine. And you'll say at least it's nourishment and you'll go home. But when you go home, you're going to say to yourself, oh, they should have had the ribs, right? The point is that's sometimes how we think about the Spirit. Well, we've got the Spirit, and Jesus has sent us the Spirit, but, you know, we'd really rather have Jesus. Okay, we can't have Jesus, so I guess the Spirit will do. Jesus wants to banish that thought from your mind. Later on, we're going to look more closely in John chapter 16, that Jesus says it's actually to our advantage that he leaves, so that we might have the Spirit. And you see, the problem is we understand and we get Jesus. But the Spirit, not so much. We may be willing to accept the gift of the Spirit for Jesus' sake, but if we had our choice, we would so much rather have Jesus here with us. And this is because we don't understand who the Spirit is. We must understand that the Spirit is a divine person. The Spirit is not a force like in Star Wars. Too often, Christians speak about the Spirit as a power that needs to be accessed, that needs to be tapped into. Christians want power, whether it's to fight sin, or to follow Jesus, or to memorize Scripture. And they think of the Spirit as a conduit for that power they need. 
if you'll forgive the earthy analogy, they think of the spirit a little bit like an electrical outlet that they need to plug into so that they can get power. But the spirit is a person who acts, speaks, and feels. In just a few instances, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit acts for us. He is a person that takes action. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. And we see this over and over again in the book of Acts and in other Pauline epistles. That the scriptures are the spirit speaking. If you want to hear the voice of the spirit, take the Bible off your lap and open it. And read the voice of the spirit. That's not just Peter or Paul or Matthew or Luke or John, writing something on a paper. It's the Holy Spirit, as Peter says, carrying them along, giving them the words, so that the words that are in your Bible are God's words. And if I could put it more particularly, are the Spirit's words. The Spirit speaks to us. And the Spirit even feels. Think about a a perfect 21st century definition of a person. You know, we used to say, I think, therefore I am. Now we say, I feel, therefore I am. But the Spirit, it is possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. The Spirit is a person. And the Holy Spirit is also God. He's not just a person. He is God himself. Our God is triune. He is one God who exists in three persons. And the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father and the Son. Our catechism puts it very well. They are all equal in power and glory. And so if I can give you a helpful quote from James Montgomery Boyce. We should not think, how much of the Holy Spirit can I get? Far better to think, How can the Holy Spirit have more of me? He's a person. The Spirit is our helper, Jesus says. Now, this word helper is an interesting word in verse 16. Perhaps some of you have a footnote, as I do in my English Standard Version. And the footnote says, or advocate, or counselor, look at these three other passages. And the problem is, is that this word, this Greek word underlying this title, is a very broad word. It's simple. It comes from two words, to come alongside and encourage. But its concept is broad. And so it's translated in various versions of our English Bibles as helper here in the English Standard Version as comforter in the authorized version, as advocate or intercessor. And it's not that any of those definitions are wrong, it's that all of them are right. This is a word that has a very broad aspect to it. Even the old word comforter can 
disguise the title for us. Because when we think of comforter, we think of a big blanket or of a warm bowl of soup or a shoulder to cry on. In the days of the authorized version, comforter came from two Latin words, with strength, like fortification or to fortify. That's what the fort in comforter means. And so the idea here is that the helper is one who comes to our aid and assists us. Now, when we think of advocate, we think, after all, of a lawyer. And now that's good if you're of a generation where the lawyer you think of immediately is Perry Mason. Or maybe even Matlock. Because you know how it's going to end. Perry Mason and Matlock are going to bring in the key witness or get the witness on the stand to say something that no one ever says in any courtroom ever. I did it. It's guilt. I'm guilty. Send me to jail. And you know at the end of the show, the person they're defending is going to be innocent and released. But nowadays, we don't really think about lawyers that way. You know, you think about this, you think about lawyers, you think about people who charge you too much money or who aren't too much help or who are difficult to understand. But in Jesus' day, in the days of the disciples, an advocate was not a retained lawyer. Your advocate was your best friend. It was the one who knew you best, who loved you most, (coughs) who was most concerned that you be defended. That's who the advocate, the helper, is. Now, even the word here we have, helper, has A difficult connotation for you and me today. When we think of helper, we think of an assistant. We think of somebody who is doing something minor to help. Now, every man here who has ever held the flashlight for dad knows exactly what I'm talking about. Right? That's the helper. Your job is to stand and hold the flashlight so that dad can work, which is like the most boring job ever in the history of the universe. And what happens is because it's so boring, you start to daydream or look or move and then you're you're grabbed back into reality as dad says, hey, the light, shine the light. I can't see. Right. And that's, I think, sometimes how we think of a helper. You know, he's nice to have around. I can't really do this myself easily. But that's not the kind of helper that the Holy Spirit is. The word helper here would be better described as one who comes to save the day. That's the helper. So Jesus wants you to know that the best thing he could do for you is to send the Holy Spirit. He is not abandoning you. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he will come. Now, commentators disagree as to what Jesus means here when he says, I will come to you. Does he mean on the day of resurrection? Does he mean on the day that he returns in glory? I think both of those are aspects of Jesus's thought. But I think given the context here, what he's referring to is Pentecost. He says, I will come to you by my spirit. I will change you and the church forever. You will never be the same. The church will explode. You will turn the world upside down. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send my spirit. Now, the second way 
that I think Jesus describes the Spirit is as a homemaker. And I use this term deliberately because you'll recall I told you earlier that the Holy Spirit seems to be the kind of anonymous, almost forgotten member of the Trinity. And so a homemaker is a good title for the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know why this is the case, but in America, when we meet someone new, they don't ask us, who are your family members? What's your favorite hobby? What do you love most? What do they ask all the time? What do you do? Right? And so I get asked that all the time. What do you do? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. And sometimes that ends a conversation very quickly. But I will say this, often not as quickly as when they used to ask me what I did. And I said, I'm a lawyer. (laughs) Then they would stop the conversation and walk away. But perhaps you've had this experience You said to someone, especially the ladies among us, I'm a homemaker. Now, your pastor is going to give you a direct, not just piece of advice, but counsel. Do not ever say the words, I am only a homemaker. Ever. Because you're not only a homemaker. You see, we think because we don't get a W-2 for homemaking... We think because we don't have an organizational chart, although some homes might, but we don't have an organizational chart that really, what we're doing isn't really that important. I'm just a homemaker. No, 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 no. Now, to the world that's worried about doctors and and journalists and professors, you know, being a homemaker may not seem to be a big thing, but every family knows that the family's life revolves around the homemaker. Without the homemaker... There is chaos. You know, I'm glad to meet with you, to visit with you as your pastor, to have you over. Do not ask to come when my wife is away. I can't vouch for anything. The cleanliness of the house, that anything works in the house. I can't vouch for anything when she's not there. And that's true for all of our homes, I think. The homemaker is the center and the hub of the home. And so... What's important about this? Notice first that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as continuing his ministry. He says, I am going, but I will send you another helper. I will ask the Father. The Father will send a helper. The Father will send a helper in my name. Now this again reflects the nature of our triune God. Jesus will initiate the sending of the Spirit. But he does so, in verse 16, by asking the Father. But remember that he said he would come to us in the person of the Spirit, in verse 18. And then if we look down beyond our passage to verse 25, it is the Father sending the Spirit in Christ's name. So who sends the Spirit? Is it the Father or is it the Son? Yes. That's the answer. And that reflects the triune nature of our God. You can't separate the Father from the Son or the Spirit. And this is crucial. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the Spirit's ministry is Christ's ministry. They're united. They are one. Jesus says, I will send another helper. 
And this word another is also helpful. It means another of the same sort. If Jesus had wanted to say a different kind of helper, he had another perfectly good Greek word to use. But he wants us to think of the helper, the Holy Spirit, as being of the same sort of helper that he is. Now, when we think of the helper, we think of the Holy Spirit, and so we should. After all, we see this in verse 16. We see it again in verse 26. We see it in the next chapter, in chapter 15, verse 26. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. We see it in chapter 16, verse 7. Over and over again, Jesus is calling the Holy Spirit the helper. But we have to remember that Jesus is our helper. That he is our advocate. John will write in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, helper, comforter, same word with the Father. <coughs> and who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the one who pleads our case before the Father. So the word another here means another of the same sort or type. And what that means for us is what Jesus had done outwardly. The Spirit will continue inwardly. The Spirit's ministry is in no way inferior to Jesus' ministry. In fact, Jesus tells us that it is a blessed continuation of His work. What Jesus has accomplished for us will now be carried out within us. You know this helper, Jesus says, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He describes that relationship in the closest of terms. Now, I think the Spirit's work is helpful to think of in terms of the offices of Christ. So, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. As our prophet, Jesus reveal, reveals the will of God to us. In his word. But how does that word come to us? By the Spirit. He's the one who carried along the authors of the word. He fulfills, finishes the work of Jesus, our prophet, for us. And the Holy Spirit continues that work through illumination. Have you ever wondered why you have friends or co-workers that look at the Bible... And don't understand it at all. They don't get it at all. And you look at the same text and are moved to tears. And it changes your life. And the way you do things. What makes the difference? Well, it's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of illumination. The Spirit's work in our lives is to make the Word of God alive to us. To bring light to it so we can see. Now, as our priest, Jesus was the sacrifice that brought us to God. And he intercedes even now for us continually at the throne of God. But that sacrifice was applied to us by the Holy Spirit. I think we can easily understand that there would be no salvation without Jesus' work on the cross. I need you to understand that there would be no salvation without the Spirit's work of applying Christ's 
benefits to you, the believer. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit continues to intercede for us. He gives us the words we need to pray. And even when we don't have the words, He intercedes for us, Paul tells us in Romans. Now, as our King, Jesus conquers all of our enemies, including sin. But how is that accomplished? How do you kill sin? How do you live for righteousness? Well, it's through the work of the Spirit, who's with us forever, Jesus says. He's doing that kingly work for us. All that Jesus has accomplished, the Spirit is accomplishing. All that Jesus has done, if I might put it this way, outside of us, the Spirit does within us as He dwells with us. Well, the final thing that we need to see is that the Holy Spirit continues Christ's presence with us. He's a homemaker, not just in the sense that He's with us and works within us, but He dwells with us. Now, again, if we were given the choice, would you rather have Jesus sitting here in the front row or would you rather have the Holy Spirit? I think many of us would find it extremely difficult to resist having Jesus. We think it would be so comforting to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. It would be so encouraging to see his hand motions, feel the touch of his hand or his arm. But Jesus tells us that it is better for us that he go away because that is the only way he can send the Spirit. And when he leaves us, he does not abandon us. Look again at verse 18. We are not orphans. Now, the word orphan means to be abandoned, to be without help or aid. You know what this looks like. You've seen the advertisements on television where they show you the orphans in Africa or in Asia or in South America. And it's as sad as it could possibly be. And you wonder, how do they have any hope? And even if I give, how will that make a difference in their life? They don't have a father and a mother. But Jesus says, you will see me. I will manifest myself to you in verse 21. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. You'll see me. Do you understand how important that is? Have you ever had a child have a nightmare? You can't, younger parents, from the outside of the door, yell in, it's okay, go back to sleep. That is not going to work. You're wasting your time. You need to open the door and to let them see you. And you comfort them. And you say, it's all right. I'm here. I'm not leaving you alone. And then... Just maybe. They'll put their head back on the pillow and go to sleep. We're not so different from children. Jesus knows that. We need to see him. We need to know him. And the way he manifests himself to us is mind-boggling. You see, Judas, and of course we get the footnote, not Iscariot. There's more than one Judas in the disciples, which is easy for us to understand. There's more than one Michael or John or, or David or Bill. 
even in our assembly. He says, how will that be, Jesus? How will we know this? How will we see you? And the world won't. That doesn't make any sense. I think Judas here is thinking of an Old Testament revelation. He's thinking of a big, spectacular view. If we're going to see you, everyone would see you. And Jesus answers it in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, this is mind-boggling. When we love Jesus, we know that the father loves us. And the father and the son will make their home with us. How is that possible? Well, Jesus has already told us earlier in verse 17. The Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. It's only possible because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. Jesus uses this language over and over again. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then he turns around and he says, I am in you, and you are in me. How could that be? It's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is in us. He dwells with us. And through that dwelling, the Father and the Son dwell with us. Do you see why you cannot downplay the Holy Spirit? It's through the Spirit that you are connected to God. It's through the Spirit that God comes to dwell in you, never to leave you forever, Jesus says. And that the Father and the Son will make their home with you. That shows us that the Spirit is a homemaker. He makes a home for God in us. And we share that fellowship, the deep, mysterious fellowship that the Father has with the Son and the Son with the Father, we then have with God. This is the beginning of Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. It's so important that he's going to continue giving us more and more over the next few chapters. We need to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he does because he is God and because he is crucial to our salvation and our relationship with God. I want to encourage you today to know and to love the Holy Spirit more and more. Not because you need power. Not because you need help. But because the Holy Spirit is God. And He is the one who connects you to God. When you believe on Jesus Christ, He sends His Spirit to dwell with you and you will never be the same. Let's pray.